master is dead. But something in the castle yet draws breath. Yo, fuck you, man. Welcome to the Dead Harvey Podcast. This is the podcast for both indie horror filmmakers and fans. And this is where we talk about the horror stories behind the horror stories. And today we're going to talk about Blumhouse Productions. We're going to talk a bit about his history, uh, his rules to filmmaking and what you can learn from him. There's a lot of good stuff and rules that he sticks by that everyone can apply if you're into horror filmmaking. Um, but first though, if you're listening and you're an indie horror filmmaker, please do shoot us a note. And if you're a fan and want to help the cause, same deal, uh, send us an email, go to deadharvey.com there. You can subscribe, follow, send us an email, uh, because this is a community and together we can get more indie horror films out there and we can get more people watching them. And that's really the idea behind what we are doing. So before we get to Blumhouse, we have two things we got to get through. One is what's on our radar, and the other is an update on where we're at in distributing, self-distributing Brad's now almost 10-year-old documentary, Suicide Poet. So first, what's on our radar? Brad, what's on your radar? I was looking through a bunch of shorts on on YouTube, just looking for like some like little short horror things, thinking that like it might be kind of cool to add them in the link to do, you know, like when you go and see we used to go and see movies and they used to do like cartoons and stuff beforehand but just kind of be cool to just i was thinking about like adding one of those and then i stumbled across this one called frank and zed now this is actually a feature movie but they did a short that was like a proof of concept they're both on youtube i'll add the link in there for them but it is awesome it's basically like and i love puppets like as it is anything with puppets i got a soft spot for but this is like puppet horror puppet splatter like with a little bit of a twist of the Grand Guignol, however you pronounce that, you know, like the theater they did in um, in Paris, which was like all the gore, like the fake kind of gore stuff. Uh, but this basically, like the synopsis of this is two reanimated corpses dependent on each other for survival live a life of solitude until a power-hungry magistrate tricks a group of villagers into attacking their lonely castle, fulfilling an ancient prophecy, the orgy of blood. Um, I can't find a release date on it for it, but we'll keep digging. But it looks We'll great. keep digging on that one. What's it? I know you've always had a soft spot for puppets and puppets have actually had like thinking about it, puppet horror. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what's the, what's the most successful puppet horror it would be meet the feebles. Probably. Although it's still sort of a little bit of um, still a little hard to find. I mean, it was, it was definitely hard to find for a while. I can't remember whether they added it to the streaming platforms or not, but it was one of those things that I always kind of had to dig for, but that's the early um, for those that are unfamiliar, the early Peter Jackson movie. Yeah with all the puppets it's sort of like a behind the scenes like muppet show kind of yeah. style yeah and it's um, fun, and puppets, it's but there's gangster puppets and everything involved yeah. in, but it basically says the pup it says that the puppets are real essentially yeah. mm-hmm. and that they all fuck each other up behind the scenes like regular actors would it's, it's, yeah, it's they're all fucking backstabbing awesome. and yeah yeah and it's, fucking awesome. attacking, yeah, it's great yeah. yeah but now i'm trying to think of other puppet horror wasn't there even a semi-mainstream r-rated puppet one with um uh what's the the girl uh the uh what was it it wasn't that long ago where she's a detective and then gets in the oh 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 uh, you're talking about the the one that jim henson's son did uh yeah the name of that movie is the happy time murders yeah the happy time murders there was that uh, and, and like i feel like well actually i mean recently nicholas cage had his um uh, puppet horror 
Yeah. Uh, which uh, wait, Nick Cage in... had a puppet horror? No, what's Meet Willie's Willie's uh, oh, Willie's oh. Wonderland? Oh, animatronic puppet. Yeah, that animatronic actually... puppets. It's Willie's Wonderland, and where he's fighting animatronic puppets. Yeah, basically like these these puppets. Um, yeah, animatronic characters. That's like in a in a place sort of like Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese uh, that we had around us. It was always sort of creepy, like the way that they move. But basically, like spirits of killers get into these get into these animatronic creatures and then Nick Cage fights them that's the that's the Willy's Wonderland one yeah actually now that I think about it like Chucky uh is, is essentially a, a that's the same puppet. thing with Chucky it's, yeah it's Chucky's they took the same concept with, with Chucky yeah, yeah, yeah. so you guys we do have a killer puppet in Chucky which was awesome then now I think back there there was of course my favorite uh uh the puppet master series and, oh, and, it's, and, it's awesome. Yeah. Puppet Master is awesome. Blade is my favorite puppet. I, I, <laughs> I was like, I was, I was, I was, I was always partial to Pinhead. Um, fuck, those are great. So, I mean, yeah, I would love to see puppet puppet horror. I mean, there is, I mean, there's always but from Chucky. Chucky's probably the biggest one. Then Chucky yeah. would probably be the biggest one because if he technically falls within that, puppet mm-hmm. horror is great, and it's still waiting. It's still waiting for. I don't want to say it's Renaissance, but it's Day in the Sun. Some massive. Definitely. Some massive puppet horror film is going to come out and change the world. And I think the reason why it's so like sort of um, few and far between is because it takes so long to make. Now, like when you hear the guys that did uh, the South Park movie, you know, Team America. I was going to say that's the other one. Team America was a puppet movie. That that's another. They said that it's it was an incredible pain in the ass to make. They were like, it's great, but it's a real pain in the ass to make. Yeah. Kind of like you know where they say like don't work with like kids or animals if you if you don't have to and don't work sort of with like, puppets yeah but like that <laughs> but probably like time probably like times twenty yeah yeah and plus, like it's on paper on paper it sounds good right like oh no we're gonna have puppets it's just puppets we can control them. they don't they don't get hungry we don't have to feed them they they kind of are just there yeah. uh you know like but but you actually have to deal with puppets like it's, and we're forgetting about gremlins too yeah. Oh yeah, Gremlins. Imagine. Oh, when you go back to the eighties, when you go back to the eighties, yeah. Ghoulies, Ghoulies, yeah, true, Gremlins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there, were, there were a bunch of pups. So there you go. They had it kind of back in the day. Ghoulies, Gremlins, Chucky. Uh, they had their, their their fair shake at, at at puppet horror, but not like not like what we're seeing here. But yeah. we are waiting. I'm I'm waiting for another mm-hmm. puppet. Like, and this is the problem. There's too much CG. They make CG That's monsters. True. Yeah, it should be it should be more. Which actually bleeds well into the Blumhouse stuff that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, boy, that was a lot about puppet. Like I was only going to talk what's on my radar. Uh, a couple of days ago, I, I, I stumbled across on Netflix the the docu series "Surviving Death," which, of course, I was I was kind of lured into the idea of. I was like, "Oh, this is about near death experiences in the afterlife," and it's kind of like a documentary series based on a book. I was like, "I'll check it out." I mean. Truth of the matter is, all I was thinking about is like, okay, this is based on a book. How'd they get this made? Because there's not a lot of meat on this these bones here. Like, yeah. There's a couple of interesting stories and like a lot of documentaries on, on Netflix. They flesh it out into like six episodes where it could very easily be one or two. Yeah. And, and interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's how Netflix rolls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they just want to, I guess, keep your I think they get more money when they have more episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean... Anyhow, as far as a documentary, I was going to be like, it was interesting because there, there is like two interesting stories in there. One is about, uh, and of course you have to question the validity, but one is like a a lady who was in a kayak accident and she was like underwater for half an hour, but it had this big near death experience yeah. and then, then resuscitated later, uh, which had a cool story. 
Um, and then there's the one that always kind of freaks me out is, and there's a bunch of cases. These they had one episode where there's like the four year old kid who starts mm-hmm. talking about his past lives. Yeah. Right. Like, and he starts bringing up like really specific things about things he did in his past life. And a guy is showing pictures of the person who he's talking about and he's identifying it and stuff. Again, I don't know how real or fake it is, but it's kind of creepy. Like, you know, a four year old's like, oh, no, that's my old mom and that's my old this. And oh, no, no, I used to play in this park and blah, blah, blah. I was murdered. I was, you know, like, and and then the, the guy's showing pictures to the little kid. And the little kid's like, yeah, that's the park I used to play in. Yeah. Yeah. That's my old mommy. And he's like, 10 for 10 on the pictures that the guy yeah. is showing him, not actually ever having ever seen them before. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Right. I love those. I, I actually love uh, the near death stories and stuff like that. I think all that stuff is really fascinating. And I, I also wonder if there's puppets in the afterlife. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly well, it's, it, 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 the afterlife is going to be whatever you make it. Yours is filled with puppets. There's is filled with puppets. It's yours is more like happy Gilmore's where it's just puppets <laughs> and, and puppets and, and pictures of beer. Dwarves uh, and dwarves on, on tricycles. With, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was the girl. It was the it was the girl um, in the lingerie with the beer. I can't remember. So, the girl. There was definitely a girl in lingerie, and then there was. I think it was that girl from Modern Family, yeah. Billy Bond, and then there was like a dwarf on a tricycle in a cowboy and hat. One in the cowboy hat, and one of them was delivering beer. Either way, yeah. that, that's all either way. That's your your your. That is all Nirvana to me. Yes. Yeah, your your <laughs> yeah. uh, your Valhalla is very similar to Happy Gilmore's. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, now we're going to talk. So the really quick update on suicide poet and our distribution is one of the problems we're having is because it was, you shot it so long ago, you did it on 720 P. Yes. Uh, which at the time was acceptable and currently is not. Yeah. Uh, and it's also reverse engineering. The deliverables mm-hmm. is not an easy task. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of funny too, on like the, on like the formats, because uh, the 720 is not acceptable in most places anymore, but like then you see all these movies that shoot on higher formats and then retroactively make it look like it's VHS. Yeah. So I think that's kind of funny. But like yeah. they're <laughs> that, yeah, the they one fake that we saw, they fake exactly, exactly. They shoot like on 4K and they're like, okay, how can we make this look like VHS? <laughs> <laughs> fake low budget. Uh, indie rights. So that was the one that I looked at. Yeah. That it said, okay, um, we can't, you can't do 720, you have to do 1080. And I was like, oh, oh Ted, we're in trouble. Um, so, <laughs> and then I also looked at their list on here too that said, uh, your trailer has to be G rated. And I was like, what the hell? And then I was like, don't they have horror movies on this site? And then I looked at some of their other titles, and some of their other titles are listed as this Bloodstone, Wild Boar, The Wicked Gift, Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown, The Stalker, Psychos and Socios, Breast Picture. Banging Lanny, The Evil Down the Street, Charmed by Darkness, Alone in the Dead of Night, Rachel Gets Strange, Art Paula Playboy, and then they also have The Town That Loved Bigfoot. But I think those are all probably G-rated trailers. Yeah, well, I mean, so anyhow, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to talk next week uh, about sort of the three different places you can go, the three main yeah. places, a million places you can go when you're kind of doing this. But the sort of three big first ones to look at are probably indie rights, like you're talking mm-hmm. about. And they're essentially a distributor. And what they're trying to do is get, they're trying to game it. So they obviously they want the best product and making their lives easier. Yeah. And really, and really what they're doing is they're just getting your stuff out there. Um, the same way you could, if you wanted to hoof it, 
but they're yeah. making it easier. But that's why they want everything in a certain way. They want to make their lives easier. Uh, so they're trying to, and I guess that's their way of trimming the fat is saying, Hey, if you haven't shot it this way, if you don't have this, and you don't, yeah. have that, don't bother. Yeah. But indie because, rights is one. Yeah. Uh, then we'll look at, uh, film hub film hub is mm -hmm. the sort of, I guess you call them, I don't know. What are they called? Aggregators? Uh, because a film hub is basically, it's yeah. like you, what you're going to do is you're going to submit it all there, but it kind of automates it and, and puts it out there on certain places to get picked up. And that, that that's sort of the, I think it's an aggregator versus a distributor. Yeah, here's what it puts on their on their main site. It says uh, Film Hub, the number one indie film distribution platform. Um, filmmakers pay zero dollars. Keep your rights transparent. Re reporting. I don't think all that's probably accurate. We'll find yeah. out. But uh, we've been putting we've been putting a lot of like the deliverables on there. It's a lot more user friendly to me than Indie <laughs> Rights is. Um, indie Rights is. The thing that scared me about them is like they have like a 32 page list of deliverables. I was like, shit, this is like an iTunes contract. I never, yeah, you gotta work, you gotta work to get your deliverables. Oh, definitely, in. yeah. Well, and I think the difference between the two is Indie Rights is trying to, and it's funny when you go to the Indie Rights one, it's a 32 page Google Doc. Like it's yeah. not even like a download or something that even yeah. looks super professional. It's like a Google Doc. Um, but it's there. You can go look, go to Indie Rights and find it. You can see it. But I think the thing about Indie Rights is there's humans there that once you submit it a human's going to look at everything and kind of go through it yeah. film hub is very automated i don't think there's a human uh, yeah. uh, uh, really dealing with anything because it's saying hey no just put it all up there and we'll put it out and uh let's see what happens right so i think film hub is more automated and mm -hmm. indie rights is more human driven um and the third sort of platform which we'll go back and take a look at is film freeway mm -hmm. which is the it's more like film hub, but for the film festivals. So it's, yeah. it's when you want to do it. And I think, you know, I, I, I've typically in the past been kind of negative on, on, on festivals, just because I think anything below a, you know, a Toronto or con or Sundance, I don't know how useful it is, but the more I talk with people, I mean, just having a few laurels and, 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 and networking is kind of worth it. So it's definitely something you should look at as your first step, which we covered before. So next week, we're going to look at the deliverables and what's needed for Film Hub, Indie Rights, and Film Freeway and sort of talk about how you got to set yourself up because this is kind of the hurdle we found ourselves at. And I guess most of our hurdles come from the fact that it's eight years ago was when you shot it. But I think it's something that when you're going into shooting something, you should be thinking about all these things because you, you can make your life a lot easier by being yeah. prepared. So uh, that's the short uh, of where we're at. Next week, we'll talk about those. So stay tuned for that one. Uh, but now, because of Freaky just came out recently, yeah. uh, and Blumhouse is basically a machine, we thought we'd talk about Blumhouse because there's a lot of... Blumhouse is like basically like, you know, should be in a way our hero, right? Because he's this guy is as indie horror as it gets. He's all about horror. Um, he has a set of rules that he lives by when he's producing films. And all the stuff about him is like exactly what we can take away. So we're going to kind of break down a bit about Blumhouse. Uh, we're going to talk about his rules, which everybody should be applying to their filmmaking. And uh, then we'll sort of we'll talk about our favorite, our favorite Blumhouse films. So, yeah, a little backstory about him. Uh, I think he's an L.A. kid um, and he actually started his career uh, with the Weinsteins of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, he was an executive at Miramax and then uh, later on was an independent producer at Paramount 
I think that's where he found uh, paranormal activity was at Paramount. Mm-hmm. But um, interestingly, how he broke in to the uh, being a producer is in 1995, or I guess before, a family friend of theirs was Steve Martin, the entertainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, he was like, Steve Martin was pretty big. And, the and, Steve and, Martin. The <laughs> yeah. Steve Martin. Yeah. yeah, the Steve Martin. And um, he had found a script that Steve Martin who was a family friend endorsed it basically saying, yeah, it's a pretty cool script. I like it. So for Blum Blum to uh, break in, he took the letter from Steve Martin, stapled it to the front of the script. And that's how he sent it out to all the studios trying to get interest. And of course, uh, when you have a letter from Steve Martin saying, Hey, I like this one. Uh, one of the Hollywood executives is going to pick it up and say, Hey, let's, let's talk with this kid. It's cool story. And, 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 I think a lot of people have been like, well, fuck, you know, like I don't have friends like that, but a lot of guys broke in this way. Like uh, mm-hmm. famously, we were talking before Tarantino yeah. knew Kaitel and yeah. through a, through a friend, it wasn't even like he was close to them. He was like, he knew him through an acquaintance and he found him to get him attached to reservoir dogs, which made reservoir dogs happen. So, I mean, if you go by the uh, Kevin Bacon rule of, of knowing people. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I I guarantee that if you're in this or interested in this, I guarantee through someone, through someone, through someone, mm-hmm. you're going to know someone who will give you the time to read something or look at something. And that's probably where you're going to start. If you can get that guy to endorse something or say, yeah, you've got it or give you some advice, attach that. It's a good way to break in. It, it, it's, yeah. it's so anyhow, that's how Blum got in. Then he really broke in, um, in uh with paranormal activity Mm -hmm. uh he was the one who discovered that and basically did the marketing behind it and i think he took it to paramount because paramount did a release it originally right oh yeah i believe so i believe that they that they bought the there was a bidding war for it Mm -hmm. and i believe they bought the the rights to it and and um not a hundred they they put some extra effects on it as well. Too. Oh yeah. They, yeah. They fixed at the it end up. of the movie. Yeah. They fixed it up. But if yeah. I remember, I think it was Blum that originally found it and it brought it to Paramount and then it had its run, but he was in on it. Like he, mm-hmm. but anyhow, that was the one that he picked up and really sort of launched him. So that's kind of how he got in. I mean, he literally went from making paranormal activity and then we're, we're talking paranormal acti- activity, like looking at it, I was like, shit, that only came out in 2000. Right. Yeah. And I could be oh. wrong on this, but I believe that they, um, the budget for that movie was right around twelve grand. Fifteen, and, according to this, yeah. fifteen grand according to this, and it grossed two hundred million. I mean, yeah. it was. I mean, it's also lightning in a bottle. Like it's oh, yeah. Blair Witch yeah. all over mm-hmm. again, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's only so definitely, many and the marketing for it was Blair Witch all over again too. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's very. I mean, anyhow, he went from like that, and then like in, in two thousand five, I think made his next one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2010 did insidious then all of a sudden like now he's doing like 15 to 20 movies a year yeah like, he's just cranking them out oh, yeah. so i mean this guy's awesome so reading through everything is what we'll kind of cover off the negatives about him and this is not negatives for us per se this is negatives what hollywood thinks about him he moves ridiculously mm-hmm. fast yeah he finds a script or an idea or something he likes he wants to be in production in two weeks like yeah. he moves super fast uh, he has very set rules, which we'll cover off, and he does not break them. He's cheap as fuck. Like, uh, I think there's a story where he doesn't even have an office. He has one of those vans, and he built an office in the back 
So if he's in production on like three things, he can drive that van to whatever production he's at and park out front and just work out of his van. Like he doesn't even have an office. <laughs> he's got to be a multimillionaire though. Like, oh yeah, but he doesn't. He's like, it's as easier, gets it done. I, I remember well, reading that. It was I, like, get, I guess I get that. If he's got to be mobile all the time, there's no point in being in an office. But I mean, it's yeah, funny. but he wants to be there and keep these guys on on budget. Well, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool that he's present all the time. That's yeah, but I thought that was pretty cool. Like he has like I think it's one of those Mercedes vans, you know, the ones that are mm-hmm. the big box thing. But he's set up a whole office in the back and he just drives around all day. He's a driver that drives him around and he works out of the back of this van. Yeah, you can really trick out those vans. There's a lot of people that, <laughs> that live out of their vans and kind of like go on the road and stuff. You gotta have some some cash to do that, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously he has cash, but you're saving a lot of money when you don't have a Beverly Hills office. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And lastly, he doesn't guarantee anything. Like, Mm -hmm. if he want, if he, if like he doesn't guarantee a theatrical, he doesn't guarantee any distribution. He's like, no, we're making the movie. That's all you get, and and then we'll figure out where it goes. So a lot of people, because you know, like a lot of directors are like, well, shit, I want to make sure it gets a theatrical release. He guarantees nothing. So these are kind of the those are kind of the negatives, (laughs) but the positive. The positives he, he he does is one, and the main positive mm-hmm. is he gives full control of the directors. He yeah. doesn't give a shit. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you a budget. You go do whatever the fuck you want. This is your movie. You make it. Yeah. Uh, so directors get to do whatever vision they want to. And two, he gives all these guys, he pays fucking nothing up front, but he gives a lot of back end. So uh, yeah. if it is a huge hit, like the director, the stars or whatever, mm-hmm. get a lot of back end. So he's, it's basically like, to me, it's like, it's a no brainer. It's an entrepreneurial thing. It's like, Hey, this is on you. I'm going to give you an X amount of dollars to, to make this film. And if you fuck it up, Hey, it's on you. But if it does well, we're all going to win. It reminds me of like a Roger Corman style, like where he would give the, the directors a lot of creative control, but be notoriously cheap. Although I don't think he gave them money on the back end, like, like Bloom does. So at least they have that like that. Cause like if those movies like really cash out, those directors could get wealthy. Well, I think the difference between Corman and Blumhouse uh, is that Corman was trying to find young and up and comers. And then by the time they figured out how they were getting screwed by Corman, they went off to somewhere else. Like he was trying to, like his vision was like, I'm just making movies. I'm going to leverage these young up and comers. It's great. I'm going to give them their, 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 I'm going to give them their intro. And I think everyone speaks really well of Corman. But he was yeah. cheap as fuck. But he was mm-hmm. getting the young ones, and then once they were, they figured they could make more money elsewhere, they left. Blum is is different because Blum will find seasoned directors and, yeah. and seasoned actors and say, "Look, I'm giving you the tools you need. I'm just going to tell you that if you knock it out of the park, you're going to knock it out of the park." People do want to work with him. Like he has a lot of big directors mm-hmm. come and work with him. I mean, and the guy has an Oscar too, right? Because he also did Whiplash. So, oh yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. he gets his he gets his. Like, like people will come to work with him because maybe they have a like Jordan Peele get out like like he could have taken that to to other places but he came to Blum because he wanted to create his vision right yeah a lot of these people is probably just don't want the studios fucking with them so like anybody that could like give them control like that they'll be like I'll take it over all that other stuff you know 100 like a yeah. director getting his budget and and being able to do whatever his vision yeah. is is not something you're gonna get in Hollywood. yeah so anyhow they broke it down into five this basically and I, i've read a bunch of these there's five rules of thumb that i think everyone is a filmmaker if you're a filmmaker or a fan it's pretty cool because you can see these in his films but as a filmmaker you can definitely pull from this for your own career because these really are five rules you should live by if you're in indie horror so the first one is really knowing your niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Blum knows horror. He knows that there's return on horror. He understands horror. But I think you could even take this one step further in that, like, you could say, know your subgenre, like whether it's mm-hmm. a zombie film or a vampire film or puppet horror. Really double down on your know your niche, know your subgenre, understand it and and deliver in that subgenre. Like you got to know everything about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's niches make riches is the term, right? That's niches make riches. And, and if you're, yeah, if you're like, we were talking about earlier, if you're the best puppet horror film on the market, mm-hmm. you're going to do well because you're the best puppet horror right. film on the market. Right. Yeah. So really knowing your niche mm-hmm. and, and understanding it is one of his rules. And I think it should be one of everyone's rules. Now, this one is pretty interesting because it's so against Hollywood, but it's no, he has no expensive shots and no visual effects because mm-hmm. those cost money. And it's interesting because if you look at like, I was watching Greenland uh, um, on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about it. Yeah. And those disaster movies are classic Hollywood ones. It's nothing but visual effects. That's true. And it's like, yeah how can I throw an expensive visual effect? It's going to blow up. It's totally useless to the plot, but it's just to show expensive visual effects. On the flip side, if you go to a Blumhouse production, it's basically like, hey, the scene calls for a plane crash. He's like, great. The plane crash happened just off camera. Let's yeah. so show some smoldering smoke here and maybe a bit of a wing. Yep. Uh, therefore, we'll establish that the plane accident happened and the characters will talk about it. Therefore, it happened and we are saving millions of dollars. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like those low budget movies that you just like hear the screeching in the car and then it shows the aftermath of the accident. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same it, it accomplishes the same thing, but you save a shitload of money. Yeah. And 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 also there are I mean you might think, oh, it kind of sucks. I want to show this, I want to show that. But there are some famous examples of this working. Mm-hmm. Um my like one of the as a kid one of the scariest scenes i ever saw was that scarface scene with the chainsaw mm-hmm. in the bathtub they don't show anything like if you yeah. rewatch that they show nothing there's no gore there's no like there's the chainsaw it's a close-up of the guy screaming with a little trickle of blood there's a close-up on the chainsaw and then just like sound effects that's it yeah uh, also texas chainsaw massacre notoriously has no actual violence it, yeah and um the psycho the original psycho um, is I think it's comprised of like 70 different cuts and none actually show a knife entering the body at all. Yeah. So, I mean, going to show there are famous examples and sometimes it even works out better if you don't show the violence. Anyhow, he, that's one of his rules, no expensive shots, no visual mm-hmm. effects. How do we get around this? And you can sit down and brainstorm. How do we get around this and, and, and get the same thing conveyed? Uh, three, which is one that we always preach uh, is limit your locations. Yeah. Right. And it's always like, hey, can this be done in one house? Hey, yeah. can this be done in one location? Because that's just that that is going to cut down your costs like huge. So, I mean, go rewatch all his movies. They all kind of take place in one house or yeah. in one area or in one like whatever. Like and it's and it's totally true. And I know producers that talk about this. They're like, how can we get the locations down? Because that is expensive to set up a new location. Oh, yeah. So uh, that is one. Four, which is one that I wouldn't really think about, and I don't know how much it means for indie film, but he's limit speaking roles. He, mm-hmm. he, he tries to, like, you know, there might be background guys, but he limits the amount of actors, he limits the amount of speaking roles, and he limits the amount of just roles in general. It's like, yeah. can we cut out crowd scenes? Can we cut out the bit roles? Can, can we make it just about this four people? And if you think about, like, Sinister or Insidious or even The Purge, 
or like like they're all very few characters right yeah the purge had some bigger scenes i guess because they had those outdoor ones but but yeah so there's uh living the speaker rules and the last one and probably the most important one and interesting one is is he controls his budget yeah uh, he knows exactly what his budget is for everyone and he knows every in and out i believe he caps currently he's capping them at five million dollars yeah Last I heard, that was what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he caps him at $5 million because he knows with his partnerships with Netflix, Amazon, wherever he has the partnerships, he can recoup his money. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of stories that I've heard of, like, like directors coming back to him and saying, hey, I need an extra $50,000 to finish this off. And he says, no, find it somewhere else. Either cut the craft services and use that money, but I'm not giving you a dollar more. Yeah. And and we're going to cut it the way it is. And if it means that it doesn't get theatrical and it goes straight to Netflix, so be it. And he just knows exactly, you know, and I think it's important for filmmakers to know. I mean, obviously, we don't have, you know, the same relationships as he does with the Netflix, Amazon or the power that he has. But you can understand what you can afford to lose. Don't mm-hmm. go over it. Understand your budget and don't break it. And I think if you do the math at the beginning and say, hey, I can afford this, I think I can do this, and you kind of set your budget, don't break that budget. And he's very hell-bent on it, and uh, I think everyone should be. Yeah, or else your cast and crew is going to go without chicken on a couple days. Go without chicken and peanut butter and jelly <laughs> yeah. sandwiches. Yeah. Um, so that's Those are basically of, like micro-cinema rules, right? That's yeah. you know, sort of what, I, what it sounds like to me. Yeah, those are his five. Those yeah. are his five rules. I don't know if they're broken down as five rules that he has, but those are kind of his basic rules. Mm-hmm. But they're, like honestly, any indie filmmaker should be able to absolutely apply to these to your movies. Yeah, for sure. Apply them to yours at a even lower level. Um, so now, having said that, we, we're going to each pick a favorite mm-hmm. uh, Blum movie. Um, you go first. Uh, well, I will pick Freaky because I just saw that recently. Actually, there's a there's a fair amount of them that that I that I like quite a bit. There's other ones that I don't as much. Um, my favorites are Freaky, Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Sinister, The Gift, Get Out, Upgrade, and Invisible Man. Those are all like really cool. Um, my least favorites are The Craft, Legacy, Fantasy Island, and Black Christmas. But that could be for another episode. <laughs> I have not seen Fantasy Island. I kind of want to see it just to say I did. <laughs> No, the plane, the plane, boss, the plane. That's <laughs> well, he kind of is, but not with a dwarf. Um, anyways, so uh, Freaky is with Vince Vaughn and uh, Catherine Newton. And basically they switch. It's basically like a, a twist on Freaky Friday. And it actually takes place on Friday the 13th. And I think the original title of it was called Freaky Friday the 13th. Um I'll have to look at that, but I think that's what the original, I think it's, yeah. Okay. So the first title was killer body and then it was changed to freaky Friday the 13th and then to freaky. Um, So, and then it actually came out on Friday the 13th. So they use that as part of their marketing. And then the mask that he wears in it is sort of like reminiscent of a hockey mask, like Jason Moore. And, uh, and like when they use the fonts and everything for the titles, they're very Friday the 13th. Like, so that's all, um, that's all very purposeful. Uh, Vince Vaughn now basically like when they switch so Vince Vaughn becomes a teenage girl and then the teenage girl becomes the killer and Vince Vaughn actually does a fantastic job at playing a teenage girl he even has the rundown where the arms are flailing around and I was looking at that and I was like where did he get this from 
And then I was watching some Steven Seagal movies. And I was like, he just watched Steven Seagal movies. <laughs> it runs like this. Steven Seagal <laughs> does do the, the flailing arms on the side. That's what it But is. it's great. Like, it's comedic and it's a horror without compromising being a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really good mixture of those two. And something that's, that's definitely out of the box, but that Blum didn't have to take that much of a risk for with his budget. But something that would never be made on a higher budget. Yeah, no, I think it's cool. I mean, that's typical. That, that's a classic one where they're like, "Well, what if we did this classic plotline meets this classic plotline, and then put them together?" And like again, it's something that only like, uh, well, I mean, that's pretty high concept, uh, but but it's definitely pretty cool. Yeah, definitely pretty cool. Uh, I was gonna pick. I mean, obviously, you can't like Paranormal Activity was one of those huge lightning in a bottle movies that was like holy shit like and it's one of those ones that as soon as you watched you're like fucking genius like yeah (laughs) like oh yeah you you, um like oren pelly i remember reading all about oren pelly and how he he kind of put that one out there and the story how it got done but as soon as you watched you were like fuck did it for 15 grand and all in like a basically like a condo yeah and it just totally makes sense and you're like oh it's awesome uh, I mean, it's obviously, and then Get Out was so huge because I think Get Out, the story of how it got made, is it, it launched Jordan Peele, and oh, definitely, and yeah, is yeah. is there's such a good story there. Creep is another one that that is super low budget. Another like when found footage films were getting kind of tired. Creep, I saw Creep, and I was like, okay, there's still life in this found footage uh, subcategory, and I and I thought it was pretty good, but. I'll probably pick one that's a little more mainstream is the one that I like the most, which was Purge, uh, mm-hmm. the original The Purge, just because I remember seeing it going, what a fucking wacko concept. Like once a year, rules are gone, people can murder each other, and then we wake up and it's and, it, and it's done. <laughs> and I'm like, what a wacko concept. Like yeah. who would ever think of this concept? I remember watching it, just thinking, just kind of, I don't want to say blown away. I wasn't blown away. I was just like, what a fucking fun not fun, but what a cool concept that, to explore. Uh, and of course it resonated with others too. And, and I think there's like five purge movies now. And I think they're even doing a purge TV show. Yeah. And that's another one of those things too, like, especially with the first purge movie, cause the budget was more limited where they had, uh, where it was that really big idea that we always talk about the big concept, but they sort of scale it down to the, the house that they're at. Yeah. So who was it that was the main star of Purge? Was it Ethan Hawke? Yeah, yeah. Ethan Hawke. Lena Headley was in it too. Oh, it's like, so basically Ethan Hawke is like sort of this, um, from what I remember, he was like a security contractor or whatnot. So he built the security for his home to sort of stand as a fortress aside from the mob that was outside. So that way you can shift most of it to the home and then sort of make it a home invasion movie. Well, it has this much larger concept of the world going to hell outside of it, but you don't really show as much of that. Yeah, and looking here too, that the original Purge is 2013. It was made for three million dollars. Wow. Shit. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, again, that's where giving Ethan Hawke back end, he's probably working at scale, um, yeah. and it grossed 90 million. And then they've now subsequently done. Uh, there's five of them, and they're doing a TV show now. So. Um, Spawned a franchise, yeah. Yeah, spawned a franchise. I just kind of remember just thinking, what a crazy idea. And it's kind of like crazy ideas when executed properly, even on a limited budget. You know, that's, it's just cool. So anyhow, The Purge is mine. I just thought it was such a cool concept. One that could only be done by someone like Blum. Definitely, yeah. uh, I saw that in theater right away. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is pretty awesome. 
So yeah, so I mean, uh, there you go. That's our that's our episode. We covered quite a bit in there. Um, so we find ourselves to the end. And if you've made it this far, we congratulate you. But please do go to deadharvey.com because ultimately we want to work with filmmakers, distributor agents, media companies, fans, all of you. We do want to see more indie horror films get made and we want to see more people watching indie horror films. So um, if you're following us and subscribing to us, it really helps out everything because we're going to figure out how to make all of this work. All right. That's it for this week. Until next week. Okay. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.